The series theme is Extraordinary Everyday Purpose. And we came up with this idea just because all of us, we are called for something a little bit more. We want to find out in all aspects of our life how we can exemplify that in a way. And that brings us to our topic today, Relationships in a Hookup Culture, led by Dr. Timothy O'Malley. Uh, just a little bit about him. He's the author of the recent book, Off the Hook, God, Love, Dating, and Marriage in a Hookup World. Dr. O'Malley holds a doctorate in theology from Boston College and works at Notre Dame as the academic director of the Center for Liturgy and uh, the director of education at the McGrath Institute for Church Life. In addition, he teaches in the Department of Theology at the University of Notre Dame, where he has discovered much from his students in his popular course, Nuptial Mystery, Divine Love, and Human Salvation. Without further ado, Dr. Timothy O'Malley. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being uh, coming out tonight. Uh, this is the, as far as travel goes, the best theology on tap I've ever attended. It was roughly an eight and a half minute bike ride. So this is the, sort of the vision of my life, if I could have this every day. Um, so thanks so much. And I'm here to speak on the topic uh, of relationships in a hookup culture. And it arises from some of the research I've done in hookup culture. And that sounds worse, actually, when you say it. Uh, <laughs> not personal experience research, but reading along about sort of sources for hookup culture, where it comes from, etc. And in fact, when I travel around and I talk to often sort of bishops or priests about this, they think they automatically know what's going on. Hookup culture is about all of the hot, meaningless sex that young adults have everywhere. Everywhere young adults meaningless engagement in this kind of activity. But of course, actually data is pointing to us to, to something actually sort of radically distinct, which is that, that the number of young adults who engage in sexual relationships are dropping significantly. And in fact, I think as we'll see tonight, this has something to do with hookup culture. And actually the heart of hookup culture, in the end, isn't about sex itself, but communion and intimacy and the deep abiding fear of committing oneself to something. So tonight, I'll just sort of describe six sort of theses I have about hookup culture and some ways that we might respond to it, engage, uh, and then invite you to engage in conversation. You have questions for discussion on the back of your uh, prayer, so those are there. You'll, you'll go into table discussion. I'll announce that when that arrives, and then we'll have a chance to sort of talk together about this. So first off, thesis number one. Hooking up is not ultimately about having sex with as many people as possible. It's the result of a fear of intimacy, of communion. Sex is the symptom, not the disease. The hookup as a term, first of all, isn't new. When I was in college, people hooked up. Uh, I know that I don't seem that much older than many of you, but I am old enough. And we would talk about hooking up in a sort of strange way. People hooked up and people talked about it in the dining hall. But actually, as a term, it never had a specific meaning. If I said to you, what's a hookup, I would hear many answers. Hooking up is anything from drunkenly making out with someone at the linebacker, <laughs> hypothetically 
to engaging in more intimate relations uh, and the, the sort of culture of late night walks or early morning walks home from dormitories. It's linked to uh, a sort of party culture, a not knowing what's going on. It can mean anything. If you said to someone, I hooked up last night, it basically is saying, I did something last night, I don't know what. <laughs> and in fact, as we know, this sort of ambiguity is intrinsic to the act. If you read sociological literature around dating and marriage today, the fear of intimacy of relationships is quite high. Hooking up, for example, is normally done early in relationships, right? So there are serial hooker uppers. But for the most part, it's the ambiguous way that relationships are supposed to start. So you randomly hook up with someone, and you hook up again and again, and you kind of hope, dot, 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 if something, if like someone could be convinced that you might actually be with that person. And so hooking up becomes this ambiguous way that we meet, date, get to know one another, it becomes an acceptable place to try out relationships, to see what's happening. But of course, there are negatives of this. Mainly, it's kind of hard to move from a hookup to a normal relationship. Because hookups, in essence, are a bracketing out of communion and intimacy, right? It's saying, you, me, sex, that's it. Last name, don't need to know it. Your history, don't need to know it. Your failing chemistry, don't care. Not my obligation. Right? So it becomes this kind of bracketed sort of fear of communion. Thesis number two. In light of this, even if you're not having sex with lots of people, you can be affected by the hookup culture, which is this fear of communion and intimacy, the fear of commitment. The heart of the hookup culture is a fear of commitment. Here is a little social experiment for you. Someone randomly approaches you, a friend, and says, hey, in a couple of weeks we're having dinner. Do you want to come? What's your response? Absolutely. The only thing I've ever wanted to do is this. Give it to me on the calendar. Or, sure, we'll see. I'm not sure. There could be a better thing that comes along, right? This is an era of a lack of commitment, right? A lack of particular commitments to things that you commit to with all of your being. I often hear this language with discernment. We're discerning our relationship. Sometimes I don't know what the hell that means. What is discerning a relationship? Are you dating them? Yeah, but we're discerning. I don't know. <laughs> what is the meaning of that word? You don't know the meaning of that word. Are you in love? Yeah. Are you thinking about her all the time? Or him all the time? Yeah. Would you like to get married? Whoa. <laughs> time out. That's too intense. When are you ready to get married? I don't know. Sometime. <laughs> dot, 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 dot. Right? There's this fear of commitment to this particular person, and actually a fear of commitment to the mundane, and actually a fear of one getting bored. 
right? Anyone who's been married knows that the secret of marriage is the is the embrace to embrace boredom. Because marriage is boring. <laughs> where does this come from, right? Well, imagine a social world where everything that exists has to be brand new all the time. I'll show you an example. Uh, this is my iPhone. It is an old man's iPhone because it's encased so that children cannot destroy it. Right, so, so this is designed for when my children throw it across the room when they hate me. And, <laughs> and so, right, when I got my first iPhone X number of years ago, I was like, this is the only device I will ever need in my entire life. It does everything. And then they came out with a new iPhone. And I was like, I was wrong. <laughs> That's the only device. Did you see the camera? The camera's much better. I need that camera. And then I was like, oh, my fingerprint. I mean. That seems practical, right? Because that number was so hard, and <laughs> my fingerprint, it can read that. Who? I mean, I know all the people that have been trying to steal the pictures of my children on my phone, <laughs> so now I have a fingerprint. Oh, you can do retina display? That's amazing. I need that, too. And then I look back, and I'm like, that is a piece of junk I had before, right? It has no meaning to it. Um, this is how sort of social commerce works in our era. Everything that is brand new will in 15 minutes be disastrous. Right? Car sales run off this. Like, this car, brand new, 2020, it will change your life. And then you're like, oh, it did change my life until I saw 2021. <laughs> so one is formed in a disposition of disposal. A disposition of disposal. There's a sociologist, a Polish sociologist, Zygmunt Bauman, who writes about something called liquid modernity. The modern age is characterized by liquidity. And here I don't mean money, cash money. This is not uh, cash money. This is liquidity as in the manner by which things dissolve. Love in our age is marked by this liquidity. Right? People want love experiences, the experience of love, and as much experience of love as possible. Uh, this book called Premarital Sex in America, and it describes, for example, one of the assumptions of 18 to 25-year-olds relative to sort of dating and romance. And they presume that sex is like an experience to be mastered through sheer sort of force of will. So the more sexual partners you have, it's like you get badges that like allow you to advance to the next level of sexual desire. This sudden abundance and availability of love experience may and does feed the conviction that love, falling in love, soliciting love, is a skill to be learned and that the mastery of the skill grows with the number of experiments in assiduity of exercise. One may even, and one all too often does, believe that love-making skills are bound to grow as the experience accumulates, that the next love will be an experience yet more thrilling or exciting as the one after next. So the hookup culture is driven by a, fe a, fe a fear of commitment to this person because there could be a better person. There could be another person. And this fear of commitment entraps not just those who are sexually involved in it, but almost everyone. I don't know how many young adults I've spoken to, undergraduates in particular, who describe how totally in love they are, 
how much they want to get married, and the fact that they just don't know. And I always say to them, what else are you looking for? You may only find one person in your life who falls in love with you. <laughs> I've met some of my undergraduates. They should really be grateful. <laughs> Number three. The beginning of hookup culture wasn't today, but the early 1920s when there was a drastic change in our understanding of love. So hookup culture doesn't begin uh, today, it begins in the 1920s. So love in early modernity, think Victorian era love, is marked by certain things. Certainly, um, like a certain degree of awkwardness, but commitment, Virtue, familial commitments. Let's say, for example, I wanted to marry my wife, and I am a Victorian-era person. First of all, that wouldn't have happened. She was from a higher class. I was from a lower class. It wouldn't have happened. But let's just say that somehow we were in Jane Austen, and there was some sort of desire that moved. Okay, so let's say that we're there. And what do I do when I want to go over to, to, to date Kara? Well, first of all, I don't date Kara. Inappropriate, not taking her out but I would come calling. And calling is awkward, for you have to enter the room and everyone is judging you. Who's judging you? Friends, family, um, readers of Victorian novels? <laughs> everyone is judging you to determine whether or whether or not you're sort of an acceptable person for this person. There's a whole community involved in this. And actually, if you read a number of these novels or sort of watch these films, you come to a conclusion that there's a sense in which like, they're willing to not follow love or relationships for the sake of a virtue or a higher calling, right? There may be a relationship where they'd get more money, more cash money, and they turn it down. Love seems to be driven by something else, not the purity of kind of desire. This is sort of pre-modern love. Now, there's negatives to it, right? We're talking about class structure. We're talking about um, the fact that women were functionally treated as objects. OK, all those things. But think about love today. It's very, very different. How do you determine that you're in love? Well, I don't know. I feel it. Think of your middle school self. Now, I know that's a horrible invitation, <laughs> but think of the kind of angst you underwent in middle school. I still have my journal from both late high school and early undergrad, and it's like, I see her from afar. <laughs> my desire for her cannot meet her beauty, it is so much. If I could but give myself to her, but she won't let me, for she is too much. I force, I forsake all love. I will wear black. <laughs> I call that London, 2002. When I was studying abroad, that was me. I got a, a piercing in my eye, and like, I acted and I experimented with my phase of, like, angst-ridden, like, crappy poetry. And then I was like, 
That's enough. <laughs> love has this effect upon us, and when love doesn't work out, something goes awry. Love comes to be connected with our self-identity. And love comes to be connected with experiences and an understanding of romance based functionally around commodities rather than virtue and, and sort of cultivation of a self-oriented toward virtue. I show my class this all the time, but notice commercials of romantic couples engaged in love. You'll notice a couple things. Number one, no children. Sex does not produce children. Only desire. Endless desire of beautiful bodies on beaches. It's always two people gazing at each other, completing each other. Diamonds are forever, and so is my love for you. <laughs> There's a sociologist, again, Eva Alouz. She's an Israeli sociologist who writes, consumption became part of the romance with the diffusion through mass culture of the notion that seduction was to be achieved and maintained through the consumption of products for self-enhancement. Romance became increasingly identified with participation in the cultural realms of entertainment and leisure. By their nature, these two objects of consumption, beauty products and leisure, imply that money is a central component of romantic encounters, both prior to and during the date. It is in the 1920s that dating becomes popular, initially amongst the lower class. How many of you have recently been on a date to a movie theater? Who's been to a movie? Th I guess no one goes to movies anymore. <laughs> sorry, Netflix and chill. Okay, sorry. Um, <laughs> like, who's been on a date ever to a movie theater? Okay, you would have been considered a lower class sexual, like, profligacy if you had done that in a certain era. Because movie theaters were places where you would take your mate away from her parents in order to get some action. They were the places for hooking up. And the assumption was, I bought you this, you bought me this. And there's actually songs about it. Uh, there's like all sorts of 1920s uh, sort of songs about like, I can't buy you too much. I pay so much. I take your girl to the movie when her parents are at home so you can get some action. It's like the Jay-Z of the day. <laughs> right, so this is the 1920s. This starts to move love into something commodified and purchased and dependent primarily upon desire. And of course, it also comes to be linked to self-fulfillment. Think about Gwyneth Paltrow. Okay, don't think too long about Gwyneth Paltrow. <laughs> But think for a moment, when she divorced Chris Martin from Coldplay, she wrote an article about it that said like, here we are. I don't know if she has how she speaks, but <laughs> I can't listen to most Hollywood people because I hear just vapidity, sort of vapidness express. I can't watch the Oscars. Okay, so um, she's like, I, we decided to consciously uncouple. So sometimes you fall out of love 
but your romance can flourish in other ways. You're friends and you raise children together. And sure, you sleep with other people, but, but you are self-fulfilled. The conception of a self-fulfilled apart from an institution, apart from particular, in, from particular institutions, is a sort of mark of our age. The changes undergone by love and modernity, again, quoting from Alouz, have to do with the transformation of the very tools of evaluation on which recognition depends. Social class and even character belong to a world where the criteria to establish values are known, publicly performed, and there for everyone to judge. Rank, value, and character are publicly, objectively established and shared. If you are rejected in the Victorian era, just because the match wasn't right. You do not write angst-ridden poetry. <laughs> but in our era, social worth has become performative. That is because worth must be negotiated in and through individualized taste. And because of the individualization of the criteria for worth, the self is faced with new forms of uncertainty. Individualization is a source of uncertainty because the criteria for evaluating others ceases to be objective. It ceases to be submitted to the examination of several social agents who share the same social codes. Instead, they become the result of a private and subjective dynamic of taste. It is you and you alone who get to determine who you love. You and your individual fickle desires. I don't trust myself alone. And it also, your worth comes to be viewed in this way. One longs to be desired and to desire. So you have a really weird vision of love. It's totalizing. It's completion. It's weirdly linked to leisure and entertainment. It is rational and irrational at once. It's supposed to lead to total and absolute self-fulfillment and spontaneity. Love is to be spontaneous, but it's also to fulfill me. And you also should know my needs, but you should not know them well enough that you don't surprise me by recognizing some of my needs. <laughs> I think of your average Cosmo quiz. Is he spontaneous? Yes. Is he a great lover? Yes. Does he also bring home a, lots of money? Yes. Can you live the life of love you've always wanted? Yes. Can you have the wedding you've always wanted? Yes. Can you have the children you've always wanted? Well, we'll bracket that. Right? This is the drive, and it leads, I would suspect, an unhealthy sense of love, where, to be honest, hooking up is often the best strategy with dealing with the paralyzing fear of actually encountering a human being face to face and recognizing that you might actually have an institutional commitment to that person as person. Thesis four, technology simply throws fuel on this fire. It mediates what was already desired and performed. Every time I talk to bishops or priests, they always say, you know, it's really technology that does this. And I want to admit that technology has a, a, has a sort of exacerbating effect on this. Think about most sort of dating apps, whether you're talking about Catholic dating apps or other dating apps. 
it really reduces the other person to an object for consumption. And I'm talking about many Catholic dating apps and many other dating apps, right? Um, I don't know how many Catholic people I've talked to that on their first sort of dating app, they're like, they received not a sort of invitation to get to know someone else, but an inquisition. Like, what's your view of the Immaculate Conception? <laughs> how much studying of NFP have you done? Here's a rule for dating. Number one rule for dating. On your first date, don't bring up NFP and contraception. <laughs> first date, appropriate questions are things like, where did you grow up? <laughs> Tell me about your siblings. What do you like to do for fun? Those are appropriate questions. If you're going to ask someone about their views of sexuality on the first date, don't go on first dates. <laughs> Eliminate yourself from the market, and I think there'll be a great appreciation, in, including for people in this room, for that reason. <laughs> but of course, it's not just Catholic dating apps, right? Sort of, by its nature, the dating app reduces self to avatar. Duck lips and all. The perfect selfie, the perfect image. Easily swiped left and swiped right. This is a meaningless event. This is a person I can move in one direction or the other. Who are they? They're a series of bits in front of me. And they also produce within us the possibility of more. When I was dating Kara, I did not have a lot of options. <laughs> I mean that in all the ways. <laughs> I did not have a lot of options. But I also didn't have lots of options. Where was I going to meet someone else? I lived here. This was the person who was here. We were here. I, my cell phone I kept in my desk drawer the entire time of college. I got it my junior year because my, I started to drive to school from Tennessee to Indiana. And my parents were like, you should get a cell phone. I was like, that makes total sense. So I got a cell phone, which I kept in my desk drawer, because I didn't know how to use it. <laughs> I s did not know how to text. I would get a text message, and I did not know what happened. So I'd keep it in a drawer, and then I would walk places. Our only digital communication were awkward away messages, sort of stalking away messages that was more like, I'm at the dining hall, dot, 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 please show up. Okay. <laughs> But if you didn't meet someone, you were like, well, I guess I don't know where they are. I will not find them anywhere. <laughs> but this app forms us to see a world that's limitless, right? So it's the incapacity, though. It, it starts to sort of infiltrate this world that is outside of us. And it also undertakes our entire attention. I'm shocked by the number of my undergraduates who are afraid to go on a normal human date and look someone in the eyes and ask them questions. Their phone has become an, a, like an, an extension of their being, a hope that would rescue them from every conversation right away, from boredom. But guess what? Life is boredom, and so are first dates sometimes. And the first date that's boring doesn't mean that the second date will be. It's awkward to get to know another person. It is. It's awkward to make yourself vulnerable. And the technological device allows a quicker moving on than should be. So I'm not going to blame technology for this as if 
technology introduced this. It's just more like a nice fuel on a fire. Thesis five. The hookup culture has sexual dimensions. It's part of a script in which it's supposedly normal that everyone have as much sex as possible, as quickly as possible, as a way of escaping the possibility of a commitment. Donna Friedis in her book, The End of Sex, describes this. There's a cultural script that's operative that if you don't have sex occasionally, often enough, get it out of the way before you enter college, there's a problem. How is this script passed on? Well, college and young adult scenes, film and television, pornography is forming a sort of sexual desire. All of this is once more formative of, but also dependent upon our fear of commitment. But the reality is, is that there's not as much hooking up going on as we think there is. It's a script. And it's full of lies, often. It's full of bragging and narratives. Uh, once again, the, the book Premarital Sex in America describes the average number of sexual partners that exist. Women claim that they've had an average, by the time they're 25 years old, five sexual partners. Men claim that, on average, they've had uh, anywhere between nine and 20. Now, quick question, that's not possible. <laughs> Or at least it's not entirely possible. Of course, homosexuality is allowed. But in this case, this study examines only heterosexual couples. So the question is, to what degree are we taken in by a script that this is actually more normative than it is? Do you know who the couples who are who have the most sex? Married people. Married people have the most sex. There are not sort of studies and assumptions about this, but it kind of makes sense. That person's always there. <laughs> You've like always committed to them, so they're just there. And you're like, it's Wednesday. <laughs> when was the last time? We don't know, but it's Wednesday. <laughs> Marriage is actually as the, the sort of hookup culture, although saying that it like leads to sort of transcendent sexual experiences, married couples have more sex and better sex. Normal sex. Boring sex. Because all sex is in the end eventually boring. All sex in the end is eventually boring. As I tell my undergraduates, many a night I'm very happy to have a glass of wine and a bourbon, or a bourbon, or and a bourbon, <laughs> than to even worry about sex, right? Human conversation, friendship, communion, that's actually the currency. It's not sex. And all of that feeds human sexuality. It feeds the relationship between a couple as they move along. Thesis number six, and this is the last one. No one actually likes the hookup culture. Like, basically, no one. No one I've talked to likes the hookup culture. Everyone complains. So here's the thing. There are cultures that people like and are hard to get rid of. Like, I would love, for example, to get Notre Dame to pay slightly less attention to athletics. <laughs> but there is no way for me to like, enter Notre Dame and be like, hey, guys, like, football's great. I love the videos. What about what would you fight for 
Dante. <laughs> what do you think? Getting kids to read Dante? Like you have a classroom, everyone's in, and they're like, ooh, Canto 22. <laughs> right? I love that. That's a hard culture to change. But in reality, the hookup culture isn't hard to change because no one likes it. I teach a course, started with 60, advanced to 90, moved to 120, up to 250 in the fall. And I have the students write about this. And almost every student says, I hate this. Doesn't mean they're religious. Most, many, are not religious. They don't like it. They would prefer to like cook a meal with someone whom they're committed to. They would prefer to actually defeat this culture. And so how do you defeat this culture? Don't give in to it. It is a myth. It's a myth. It's propagated to you. It's given to you. It's told to you that this is the normal way by which young adults should relate to one another. You don't have to. You just don't. And it requires some active practices, right? It means that actually a lot of you in here, I don't know all of you, so know that I speak in a very abstract manner, need to actually work on the art of commitment. Commit to a person. Ask someone out on a normal human date. Don't take your damn phone with you the entire time. Don't be awkward. Learn basic human social skills. Learn to look someone in the eye and say, hey, how was your day? Tell me a bit about yourself. Instead of like, hey. <laughs> Learn the basic dispositions for human relationships that actually enables this flourishing. Do so grounded in friendship. Instead of so much fraughtness put upon the possibility of romance, all of this, I think, can serve as a kind of medicine against it. So then, in conclusion, what do you do then? I've hinted at this, but it's the reformation in the area of communion and commitment. Make commitments. Not all of you will be married in life, perhaps, but make communion and commitment that matters. Friendships that are communion, that are committed to one another, matter as much to the world as romantic relationships. Understand the institutional gift of mundane love. Not all love, no love is about the completion of self. You are incomplete. Give up the project of self-completion. It's a waste of time. One is complete only in orienting oneself to God alone. Date in a normal way, in an act, in, in, in the series of friendships. Audit your use of technology. Do you use it? Why do you use it? How? And if anyone can invent a sort of dating app that isn't obnoxious, do so. <laughs> and then challenge the cultural script. What is sex? And what is love for? And in the end, love is for institutional, mundane things, right? I have relationships of love that are very distinct from one another. 
And I'll highlight just two to call it a day. I love my wife, but I also have a group of high school friends who've been friends forever. And we actually don't talk to one another. We definitely do not talk about our relationship as self-completion. We now regularly text one another. Well, I don't text anyone because, again, I still don't know how it works. But <laughs> occasionally texting and sharing a communion with one another across time and space, an institutional commitment to one another. These friends I will not leave. When their mom dies, when their dad dies, I'll be there. I'll be there for them when they have kids, when they have bad news about kids. That is a communion and a commitment that's legitimate and shows the human being is destined for a permanent love. Yet I'm also married. And the communion that I've experienced in this relationship is also connected to this. It is a lot more linked to this friendship than it is about some sort of remarkable completion of self through romance. It's the best part of marriage is simply knowing that you have someone who will remind you that it's trash day on Monday. <laughs> and will be there when you're sick. And in that regard, dear friends, whether you to be married or not to be married, whether you to enter into relationships or not that are romantic, that's possible for all of us. To be there for one another, to commit to the flourishing of each other, whether we're called to a life of romance or not. And so in some ways, the hookup culture, the worst thing it does is it seems to reduce the human person to sexual and romantic relationships. In fact, we're made for a lot more. We're made for communion with each other, through romance, certainly, but also more deeply through friendship. Thanks.